Hey, this is Ross Payton with Roleplaying Public Radio, and we are in Game Designers Workshop. I'm interview- interviewing sorry, uh, Peter Nielsen, the author of Boiling Point, and uh, we're going to be talking about Kickstarter, the uh, Base Raiders, uh, Peter's experiences, writing for the first time, my experiences publishing for the first time, someone else's work, and uh, yeah, so I'm no longer self-publishing, I'm just publishing, publishing, but you know. Uh, so, Peter, introduce yourself. Hello, my name is Peter Nielsen. I'm Todd Norioyama on uh, most of the things affiliated with role-playing public radio, uh, more broadly known as TAD, uh, to my uh, friends and associates online, and uh, recently switched over to full-time GM for branding purposes. It's a pleasure right. to be here, Ross. <laughs> it is, uh, thank you. Um so to give you guys, uh, the listeners at home, a little backstory on how this got started. Um, in the original Base Raiders Kickstarter, I promised an exclusive adventure for people who backed at the deluxe level, at the high end, um, something that wouldn't be available for retail. And that was, and I outlined something that I thought would be something interesting, a novel for a superhero-themed RPG, which was an investigation-themed uh, adventure. So that was Task Force Darknet. But... After I launched a Kickstarter and I, or I finished the Kickstarter or uh, the campaign, I realized between writing, editing, and laying out the book, I wouldn't have time to write the adventure and get it out in a reasonable time. And so uh, you and I had already been talking on and off for some time, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I just kind of like, hey, do you want to write an adventure for Base Raiders? And I have an outline for it. Yeah, yeah, that I, was uh, yeah, that was how I remembered it. I recall it distinctly. We were at uh, Gen Con um, year before the current one, so 2013. Um, mm-hmm. We were uh, I'd just come back from uh, having to miss the meetup, but we were hanging out afterwards and uh, talking about various things. And I mentioned that I wanted to be a RPG writer and that uh, I'd enjoyed your work and whatnot. I was basically trying to flatter your ego, and uh, <laughs> you mentioned that you had. Uh, oh, I have this thing that uh, I needed to do for Base Raiders. Would you be interested in writing that up? And I said, yes, absolutely. Because <laughs> why say no? <laughs> uh, yeah, and so that was Task Force Darknet, which um, the idea behind it as an investigation-themed uh, scenario is that the players have to find a base, because that's kind of one of the things I wanted to make in the, in the main game. It wasn't just the dungeon crawling. Like Part of the game is just finding the, the place to 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 explore to loot uh and that can be just as valuable as hard to do as you know the actual dungeon crawling part of it and i felt that a lot of people would kind of overlook that i wanted to have that adventure bring like hey you can do all this all kind of mystery stuff too and that can be fun as well and uh so that's how it got started um at least for task force arknet and then after it uh, we, 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 you wrote it, I edited it and it was a pretty straightforward thing. Yep. Um, it was, uh, not too hard. I, I sent it out to the backers, but then I realized I had all this material that, you know, I wanted to make it exclusive for the game, uh, for the backer, for the Kickstarter backers, but that no one else would ever get to see it. And that I felt that was kind of, it was, a, I, th- I, I think you did a good job with it. Um, uh, I kind of wanted people to like, experience it but i didn't want to like lie to my kickstarter backers so i thought uh i know it's just an investigation there's no actual base described and it's designed to be open in so you can fit in whatever kind of base you want it to be so why not like add a base onto it and 
for my and also from my perspective, a lot of people in RPPR, a lot of listeners, commenters, like, oh my god, oh my, I love this adventure. I'd love to write it. Do you have it available? I'm like, well, no, I don't. I only have notes for it. And the problem is, I, I, there's sort of a bottleneck in the production cycle for RPPR or slang design. My work, and that is mainly my time and energy, which is very limited. Mm-hmm. And um, I can only produce so much at a time. So I, I wanted to figure out a way to solve this. It's like, hey, get other people to help out. I, I and I've been doing that already with the artists uh, for a while now because I can't I can't draw, so I needed their help anyway. Uh, <laughs> but I, even though I can write, why don't I get other people to help write? And then I can get this kind of these kind of adventures that people hear on our actual plays, and then they, they they would actually get a chance to 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 get them and play them uh, for their own groups. And so this was kind of the first step in that cycle, and me experimenting in figuring out how to publish scenarios and how to get writers to help with that. So, um, so that was fast forward to this year. And so I wanted to do that because I, I mean, originally I was going to do Ruin, which was a standalone game, but that was, I, I've had to wrap, and we've talked about this in previous episodes of the Game Designers Workshop. It's just been a hard project for me to figure out how to structure because mm-hmm. it's such a weird, you know, con- on a conceptual level type well, game. It's architectural horror. You have to yeah, write the games so people are afraid of buildings. Yeah, exactly. It's how do you, do, it's not like there's a lot of precedent for that. Mm-hmm. And so, but I wanted to, uh, uh, and so you had already written this adventure for Base Raiders, and I wanted to do uh, something to get people, you know, I, I didn't want to just abandon Base Raiders mm-hmm. either. Um, and so I think, uh, what was your memory of, like, uh, the starting of Boiling Point? I mean, from your point of view. Well, so. I always, I wanted to write, and I was, I recall there was some, in, you'd, um, I'd written for with you for Task Force Darknet, that was basically done, and when I was playtesting Darknet, I'd started a base raiders group. So I was actually playing and running the game and my home campaign. Darknet led directly into an actual base for us when that, uh, that I built, designed, generated. And that was what ended up becoming Boiling Point, that initial sketch. I thought, I'm really proud of this. I bet I could make something really cool out of it. And I don't know if it was in a podcast or on the forums. You mentioned, like, hey, if anybody has ideas for Base Raider stuff, contact me. I'd love to love to talk about Base Raider stuff. So yeah. I wrote up an initial I, thing about it and sent it in. Yeah. Um, and I like the idea for it. Did you actually use the base creation rules uh, in Base Raiders, or did you just come up with it whole cloth? This one we we used... I think we used base creation rules for part of it. I had a lot of it that I already decided on, like that it was going to be underwater, and I decided it was going to be shark people. <laughs> uh, so I did. Um, I I led the players a little forcefully through it. Um, the thing that they decided on that actually became part of the fixing point was the the treasure that there would be treasure in the scenario because at the time. The players in the campaign were very money obsessed. They they wanted to be rich. That was really what their characters as heroes were after, because all of them had very monetary focused goals. So they were capitalists. They really, I mean, really well. One of our Andean heroes. Our, we had our our campaign aspects, and the main campaign aspect we picked the very first one was base rating is a business. So everybody <laughs> in that game was was a Randian capitalist. They were all about raiding these bases and selling stuff and marketing. So 
basically I said, all right, well, here's the deal then. I'm the thing that I pick as a GM using the base creation rules. You know, there's a couple things and it's how many players you've got. So I sort of went around the table. I had five players and there's seven aspects for the base. So I said, all right, well, one is secret and I get to pick one and you guys know what it is and everybody else can vote on another one. And I kept one secret, and that was the shark people. And then the other one, I said, you know, what is in the base? And what is in the base is gold. It's it's full of gold. Like, you guys can just go in there and get it. I don't give a shit. <laughs> Um, it's like a payday level all of a sudden pretty you know? much heist. Yeah. so that was the whole the whole thing is the players understood it was that they were basically looking for a pirate ship full of gold and so they wander into this scenario expecting a pirate ship full of gold and they get this base and all this alien technology and the shark people and they're they had a really interesting time of it because that was back before a lot of the stuff that's been changed was in it so there was no outpost. It was a uh, it was a different structure altogether, which was changed during revisions when I actually proposed the scenario to you. Um, they blew that up. They blew they blew pretty much everything up, uh, <laughs> barring the goal. They, Even the goal. Okay, so they say the no, goal. No, no, they. Um, I believe they actually threw people out of the sub because they had some players that could survive the pressure. They threw mm-hmm. people out of the submarine to make more room for gold. Cause I was like, well, you can only fit so much on the boat. And they're like, okay, who can survive the pressure? Who can hold their breath long enough to get to the surface? <laughs> How much gold can we put on this sub? <laughs> uh, wow. Did you have a hot water in the hero base and the octo uh, robots at that point? Uh, there was, um, I, there were no octobots at the, at that time. That was just the, uh, the shark bots that were against part of the rewrites where I wanted to have, um, some sort of a conflict. Cause the, mm-hmm. one of the beautiful things about base raiders is that you can very, fairly seamlessly go between social reputation and, and physical combat. So I wanted yeah. to have something in there that would actually allow for reputation based combat or for, for social combat and having, the sharks and the octopus robots being there together seemed like a good way to set that up. That if they were opposing sides that you, the players mm-hmm. could, could choose to work with. And, um, in the design of the base, I never really imagined the players would fully side with the shark people, but I, I thought, well, there's some weird base rating groups out there, you know, maybe <laughs> some people would prefer to rule with the sharks. <laughs> uh yeah and when you listen to our actual play and our rpvr actual play uh you will find out how the our players uh the rpvr group responds to that yeah Uh, should have seen that coming honestly i've been listening to the vodcast long enough i should have guessed yeah Uh, but uh i mean that's a good point and i think um that's one of the things that really uh i really it really drew my attention uh because that's such a classic uh, structural design or like a, a, a type of dungeon mm-hmm. in role-playing games, which is the, I mean, and it even goes back, but like, if you look at the Conan, the barbarian story, story, red nails, you have this weird, uh, ruin, this weird structure. And there, there are two factions fighting each other within it. And then Conan shows up to try and play each side against the other. And, and that's been, uh, replicated in many dungeons, like the tomb of a temple of elemental evil, mm. uh, is the most famous example, I think, mm-hmm. uh, where you have the, again, these different groups in the dungeon and you can go to one or the other, you can ally with one side and, uh, ignore the other. And I really like that, uh, as a, that's just one of my, 
preferences as a GM is like that's always more fun than just like here are a bunch of monsters you have to wade through. You just have to you know mm-hmm. uh, get knee deep in the dead before you can get to the <laughs> get to the end of the dungeon. Um, and so that's one of the things I really liked uh, about it. And um, so the idea of having multiple structures, not one base. There's actually you know uh, really four major structures. Mm-hmm. Uh, in boiling point, like how how did that come about? Was that more just thinking about the history and how it happened, or was that uh, again more playtesting and revising? Did you playtest this more than once? Uh, like I playtested this, I playtested it twice before we got to the the revision draft that we had for the the Kickstarter. Um, yeah, and which is the draft that we're playtesting right now. Right. Uh, so it had gotten two before that. It was the initial run. And then I gave it a, a rerun with a different group just to, to see how it went. And both came through fairly similarly just because they were a very similar group of players. Uh, I wasn't mm-hmm. able to get a diverse group for the second run because I don't really have access to a massively diverse group. Um, yeah. And I, I knew from the start I wanted it to be in multiple parts because that was, again, the initial scenario was really written at this this multi-part base where there was gold at the bottom of a pit a very classic kind of kind of dungeon design that they were going to go deeper down and that it got more dangerous as you went deeper for whatever reasons Mm -hmm. so there was there was the treasure at the bottom and then there was something preventing them from getting the treasure and there was the place they had to find to even know where the treasure was so uh the the boiler as the central area was always designed to be one stage, and originally it was it was really three stages. the 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 choice to really stretch the hangar away from everything else kind of came as I, just from the logic of how big a place would have to be to facilitate the craziness that you see in superhero stuff, like that you've got. I, I looked up dimensions for submarines just as a, a thing, and I went online and I was like, "All They're right, big. how big is a submarine?" And they weren't nearly as big as I thought. Was the the weird thing? And I was like, "Well, that's still pretty big." And I, I thought, "Well, how big would something have to be to put to have a door big enough to admit it, and then to be able to put them in a place? Like where where do they keep these things, and where would they go?" So. The idea of having a place that's large enough that you can store underwater planes and submarines and all these things and that it could justifiably contain enough for a, a superhero summit if they were to arrive, then yeah. it just blew the hangar to such ridiculous proportions um, that I started trying to think of more things that could be in there. And that's why there's the, the grappler device. That's why... Uh, the primary power is connected with, uh, well, that's why there's a thing connected with the, the hangar now, as opposed to just the hangar being alone or uh, being directly connected with the other base. Uh, and it, I think that it provides a decent narrative break, that it's pretty doable for a group of players to find the base and get into the boiler in a session. But once it yeah. came to clearing the hangar, it was very clearly like, I didn't see people doing that all in one group, so... Uh, disconnecting them kind of made it logical. I tried to approach it that put enough material in any given area that it would take about a session for folks to get through it. Okay, that's an inter- yeah, that's an interesting way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you you imagine it's so there's four major areas in it. So you imagine it would be four sessions to get through. I imagine the, uh, that if the players if the players focus. <laughs> 
yeah. to a decent degree, <laughs> it would be four sessions. But uh, given the way most players and some storytellers tend to behave, or depending on how complicated yeah. the situation got, it could extend out to eight or nine. Um, right. In most depending groups, how you approached it, yeah. Right. In most groups, probably not, because as we've seen from certain play tests, um, players don't necessarily want to follow the logic line. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, I mean, their logic is different. I mean, right. That's, and that's, that's been so weird. <laughs> I mean, that's the thing is a design, your first time, you know, uh, author of a game a scenario. And, um, for me, one of the first things I, I learned as a, as a writer, uh, a game designer is that what you think is the natural flow of logic, like the players should go from a to B to C and then you realize other people, they're not crazy, although it's tempting to think they are. They just – they instantly come up with a different uh, mode of thinking. They, they think that it's A to D to E to 1. Yeah. And I mean how was this – like in terms of your own input, like how uh, – what what revelations have you come up with? I mean is that is that your experience or like am I – No, that's, uh, that's pretty much spot on. Um I've learned just from doing this that you want to you want to get players looking at these things uh, kind of as soon as you can. Like play testing is really really important just to get what other people see when they're actually in the game world. And it became very clear as soon as it happened why they were thinking that. It's like, "Oh, well they don't know. They don't know what I know. They didn't write mm-hmm. the scenario based on the information that they have." There could be any number of logical inferences. This is merely one of them. That's what they picked as the first thing. I picked a different one, but then it became clear that there were so many, so many more. So just having having a player look at it, <laughs> having somebody else look at it, and derive a what is well, depending on how you've written the scenario, a wrong answer gives you like the chance to go back and rewrite it so that's not in fact incorrect. That their their choices are actually plausible. Yeah, because a, I mean, a poorly written scenario will just be destroyed if the players make a quote unquote wrong choice. Then they just can't win. They can't finish the scenario. And and that's one thing I think uh, I'm looking forward to when this Kickstarter is over, uh, because we will send out a playtest draft of it as it exists basically right now. As soon as we got, we're going to get some more art in, and I'll make some changes to the text and kind of give. But it's going to be it's pretty rough right now in terms of the the draft. Right. Um and. It's only been we've only gone one pass for like grammar and things, so I know I miss some things. Oh yeah, uh, I, yeah. I found some on the resweeps, and it's it's embarrassing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you, I mean, you can send me what if you have a final draft if you've been working on it since. Oh, don't worry, I'll have one before the end of the Kickstarter. Okay. <laughs> okay, so we'll we'll have it slightly revised. It won't. It will be readable, uh, uh, comprehensible English. But um, <laughs> any any, uh, we'll send this out to all the backers, and then they'll have a month to read it through and send in feedback and play test it. And um, we will then the final pro- and that will make the final product that much stronger because we will be able to get all those typos uh, hunted down. Mm-hmm. We'll be able to get all those like if and and the thing is of course about play testing you have to you can't take every single suggestion because you know you can get mutually exclusive playtesting feedback like this is too st- this is too hard this is this fight is too hard this fight is too easy mm-hmm. you know you can't you can you literally can't make a fight harder and easier <laughs> at the same time so you have to choose whether it's just right it's too hard or too easy so um since you've already been getting some uh feedback already mm-hmm. um have you kind of 
I guess that's one of the things that game designer has learned is like, how do you take feedback? How are you revising? Like what, what I mean, I have my own personal guidelines about what is good and what is, what feedback I'll use and what I won't. But I mean, what about you? What, what, are, what is your, uh, theory of playtest feedback i guess uh playtesting feedback i haven't gotten as much of yet i really only have the stuff from the people who've actively gotten access to the scenario so uh the drunken ugly that you ran for the the rppr guys who had some great things to say about it i was very happy to get their their information back my own players from the initial drafting um that's not very useful as feedback information just because they're the guys that i've known for years so their opinions are already noise in my ears I'm really looking forward to hear back the the stuff from the Kickstarter because that's going to go out to people who have no idea who I am and mm-hmm. don't give a crap about whether they hurt my feelings or not. And <laughs> I think that's the kind of feedback that an author really needs, at least as far as I'm concerned. I've yeah, impartial. Yeah, I haven't ever really had a problem with the with the feedback. I've had some things where uh, during previous drafts or during Darknet. Um, where I've sort of sat down and thought the initial thought is, well, you're a stupid, you don't know, you don't know what I was trying to do there. And I try to bring that back right away. Like, well, of course that, that answers itself. He doesn't know what I was trying to do there. Cause I didn't tell him I have to make it better. So he knows what I, I try to turn it into a uh, creative push that if somebody doesn't understand you, it's not their fault. <laughs> It's not their fault they don't know what you meant. It's your fault. You didn't tell them. That's a very good attitude to have. Um, And not every author gets that. I think uh, it's, again, one of the milestones you have to get. Um, So uh, in terms of, again, you mentioned the uh, um, playtesting from the the actual plays that we've done. We've done, like, I've done, I've run three games worth of it now. Uh, not counting Task Force Darknet. Um, actually, why don't we talk about Task Force Darknet sure. first? Because we kind of mentioned that. I mean, I've run an actual play of that, which was a playtest of it. Um, in terms of your experiences listening to that mm-hmm. and also writing it and then looking at it now, now that you've had some time between when I've when you actually sent it in to me and I sent it out to Kickstarter backers, mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't get much feedback from it. Um, well, it went to a very small group comparatively. It went like, to it an, yeah, exclusive it went, backers on base raiders. Yeah, it was very it was like high end. You had to pay at least I think fifty bucks or something to get it, and that was it. And uh, so it was a very small group. And but now that you've had time to reread it, and certainly putting some d- time uh, has that helped you? Like putting some time between when you wrote it, now that you're looking at it, at it again. Yeah. Um, I I understand what a lot I I hear this a lot from authors that I've listened to in interviews and things where they they talk about looking at their old works and just being endlessly embarrassed they're like oh I can't believe what I thought and, and that I that I wrote that and I'm not quite that far yet I I'm close enough to it that I don't feel embarrassed by what I wrote I made a good faith effort but I can certainly see with some more distance, the, the ways that I can improve it and the ways that I intend to, since we're, we're using some of that material for this current project. Um, I think that there's stuff that can always be improved. It's, uh, there's diminishing returns, certainly. Like if, if you come back to the same scenario every year for 50 years, yeah, by the end you'll have a, a finer scenario than you did after year one. But after year 25, I, I don't know if you're going to make significantly yeah you're not gonna make significantly more changes at that point it you can only polish it so much 
Yeah. Uh, so yeah, this for this it's it's been about a year since I start. Well, since I started. Uh, yeah. So I can see where there can be some improvements because uh, Darknet's a pretty tight little scenario. Like it really is about a session worth. Um, yeah. In fact, when you when like when you ran it uh, for the playtest for the RPBR guys, I think it took them an hour and a half, and fifteen minutes of that was the briefing. Like they they fixed it real quick, and they fixed it in a way that I didn't anticipate. The the shit that Caleb came up with was <laughs> yeah, and that they executed. Um, and especially in a game like Base Raiders, where it's I. I could not anticipate. I didn't anticipate a character like Tom's or or some of the other or like David's, like these characters that people come up with in superhero games. Anticipating all the different combinations or things that people can do, um, even within the f- comparatively narrow confines of Strange Fate, um, yeah. is is really hard. <laughs> yeah, actually, I mean that's that, that that's a good point. Uh super the superhero genre is very hard to design for uh because it by nature unless it's like a specific setting where like all powers have this commonality to them, you know, like the progenitor setting for uh Wild Hounds mm-hmm. or something like that where like everybody gets their power from X and all X powers have these traits. And, you know, these kind of – in the standard superhero game, which is like, you know, a sort of knockoff of Marvel or DC Comics or Image or something like that where like, hey, we got magic, we got alien technology, we got mm-hmm. time travel, we got gods, we got whatever you want. We'll just throw it in there. It's like riffs, but, you know, it's in <laughs> New York for reasons. And – when you have that in there, um, it's really hard. It's one thing to write a story with that because, you know, when you're writing a, a standard story, you, you know, you're writing Batman or the Avengers or something, you can ignore anything that would make the problem trivial or go away. You know, like if Hawkeye's having problems in his Hawkeye comic, why doesn't he just call Iron Man or the Hulk to help him? Well, because it's a Hawkeye comic and he's not going to do that. Mm-hmm. So you can't just have, you know, those guys show up. But in, this, in an RPG, players are going to be like, I'm just going to call Hulk, uh, uh, the Hulk and have that guy beat him up for me, mm-hmm. you know, or something like that. So, like, and that's not counting their own powers where, like, oh, I have the special snowflake power that is really weird and hard to design around. And, like, I can kill anybody who, has, who wears the color blue. Yeah. You know, and, you know, and that that is kind of the nature of the beast for doing that. So um, in some ways, like, you've yeah, actually probably had a tougher time than I have with base raiders because I wrote I just wrote the game and I've tailored all my adventures specifically for my group of players mm-hmm. who I know and I know what they can do. Um, you have to write for everyone and all kinds of powers. Yeah, that's been that's been a bit of a change. I'm I've been I've been a GM for a long time now. I, I know what it's like to try and design around difference, but trying to design something that's going to broadly appeal to uh, ostensibly everyone, anyone that picks up the book and tries to run it, is is daunting because you have to consider a lot of options and it gets really challenging when you're trying to write a scenario because to describe every possible opportunity and there's there's a little of this in the book just because we need so much of it but yeah. you have to like all right there's a door in the scenario this door is locked it can be broken open with this check yeah. or it can be picked with this check if your players can teleport this is how they can get through it <laughs> if your players are psychic and they can 
read machines this is how they get through it if your player knows a seance spell and can learn the password this is what they can do and there's there's a certain a certain point where you just have to kind of give a very general description of like this is how you break it down this is how you pick through it this is how other powers might get through it. You kind of have to guess what the most common things people are going to do are, and the, the safe bets there are super science, super strength. Like there, there's some things that you can just count on people going to very quickly. But that's a good point. Yeah, yeah but you can't especially the super science, super strength. Yeah, yeah, but you can't design a whole scenario around that because there's going to be an odd group like where everybody is um, everybody's playing a pacifist <laughs> motivational speaker. Like everybody's playing one of the crystal children. They're all like, and nobody can hurt us. We all have, we all have absolute defense against all violence. Okay. Wow. Okay. So what do you do? Eh, we wander around a lot. <laughs> what do you do when there's, and then which, which becomes an interesting, that's honestly an interesting scenario. Like what's, what do you, how do you defeat that? When well, we lock the door, we don't let them in. <laughs> <laughs> They're not strong enough to beat it down. We just we just we turn our ears off and don't talk to them. <laughs> wow, I would actually love to hear that kind of game uh, uh-huh. because that's playing an entirely different kind of way. Um, and Base Raiders lets you do it. <laughs> it it does, and it kind of encourages that kind of. Uh, there is kind of a sort of zaniness that some people have mm-hmm. sort of commented on. Um, and, and for me, that's just kind of me enjoying the the implications of living in a comic book world mm-hmm. where you have. You know Cthulhu and you know the Judeo-Christian God living in the same cosmology. Yeah. Plus, because uh, there's obviously demons and possessions, but there's got to be you know deep ones and Shagaths wandering around. So you know the the implications <laughs> are there. Um, so in ter- so Task Force Darknet, yeah, it's writing an, inv- an investigation scenario uh, premised in a world where characters can literally see you know theoretically have powers that let them know answers instantaneously. Like so. How do you? How do you? You know, I, I think the scenario is, works pretty well. Yeah, um, there's only so much you can design around. If yeah. you have to kind of rely on a storyteller or a GM to to police their players a little bit. That if the player designs a power that says no plot point, then you kind of have to hope that the storyteller caught that. <laughs> yeah, um, and that this is true. Know, that it's not just going to take it apart. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so we're uh, going, and of course we we have handouts for it as well, mm. um, because with the players, uh, I think that helps in mystery investigation games. Um, so do you think? Uh, I guess we're probably going to have to revisit that too, or do I mean I don't know. What do you, we have? I've been so focused on the bullying one. Do you think you want to re re uh, re examine those handouts or the yeah. design? Basically, oh, definitely. Now that I, I have okay. a little bit more time and access to a little bit better program, I could I could probably make up something a little bit better most of the handouts like the text handouts those are fine they they're just a matter of like oh here this is a uh here's a watermark and here's the text that the government uses and it's a government handout like that's that one's pretty easy but a lot of the stuff uh for those of you that don't know there are some very elaborate handouts in uh in task force darknet and Mm -hmm. um some i consider i considered some very elaborate methods of staging um there's a there's a forum conversation in one, for example, and message board, message yeah. board conversation. I seriously considered registering a bunch of fake accounts and just making a thread somewhere and kind of turning it into like an AR joke, like post yeah. this 
and then <laughs> see who responds and what they say. Um, but that immediately became like, well, I, I can't just take everybody's shit. Like there's, you know, <laughs> yeah, there's laws against that stuff. I, <laughs> so I just, uh, I, I put something together that I thought held up okay, but I could do better, especially now okay. that I have a better understanding of, you know, what the internet looks like. <laughs> uh, it's interesting you mentioned that. Now, I'm sure you're, you're aware, but for the listeners at home, uh, one of the things about Base Raiders is during the original Kickstarter, I posted previews from the book, and one of those was talking about super soldier drugs. And super soldier drugs are, you know, like how Captain America got a strength or whatever, but they're a common power source in the game and like people can buy them off the black market and of course this being the internet age pete there's a digital in internet black market and so i created up a fake uh screenshot of like what that would look like of an auction listing for buying soviet super soldier drugs that give you make you really strong and i posted that screenshot on the inter- on the website, mm-hmm. and that's since <laughs> uh, I've gotten over a dozen replies now of people like, "Can I have this drug?" They think it's a real thing, mm-hmm. and like, there's even one guy who says, "I was tested. I used this in the U.S. Army during 1991, and don't do it. It's it's too dangerous." And um, it's a, a, a Vice.com article talking about the dark net for real drugs uh, uses that screenshot to show you what a drug a market for you know illegal drugs would look like online even though it's talking about super soldier drugs Mm -hmm. you know and it's interesting to see how people were fooled by that i guess that's it was a good one it's a good screenshot russ yeah uh, thank you i mean i actually logged on to the silk road before it was shut down saved a web page then just changed the text in html and then just opened that up in a browser Mm. and took a screenshot of that and that's all I did, <laughs> and it seemed to work. Um, so maybe some of we'll be seeing some of your works, and so that, that I don't know if that's relevant to anything. I just think it's funny. Uh, yeah, that, but that's it. That sort of that speaks to another another thing of of bay of uh, game design, which isn't really here, but like you know, having some some responsibility for what you're putting out in the world. Like um, you listed to to. to you know, to segue a little bit, talk to like Adam Scott Glancy and those guys when they talk about putting out fictional pieces they've written about government conspiracies and things, and they show up on people's blogs as evidence. Like you know, the stuff you put out there, people find. And this is true. Yeah, this is true. Uh, Delta Green, for example, Call of Cthulhu game uh, setting um, has been mentioned by various conspiracy theorists as part of the new world order or part of proof of the government's hiding UFOs and whatnot. And that's, and of course they, Delta green is very obviously a role playing game, but to, to the theorists, Oh, that's just disinformation. That's so you won't believe the real truth about Delta green. And, um, <laughs> that's just kind of one of the things that happens when you're a game designer, mm-hmm. people misinterpret your work. Uh, so there's not much you can do about that. Um, but in terms of uh, going back to the boiling point, yeah. uh, we have uh, this Kickstarter going on, and you've uh, seen how people have been reacting, and people have been, you know, pledging, supporting it. Um, how what how what have you learned about Kickstarter and the whole process of promoting yourself, promoting the game uh, on the internet uh, since you this has started? Since this is your first time. 
participating in this kind of project, right? Yeah, I've never done anything like uh, like a Kickstarter before. It's something that I've looked into. I've been on Kickstarter for a number of years now. I've you know worked back several VRPPR projects, followed it, did some other th- <laughs> other uh, other things. Uh, there's a number of companies that do consistent Kickstarters for their projects that I I patronize. So. I've backed a number of starters, and I've seen how they work as a participant, as a backer. But being somebody who's looking at it on this side, uh, you develop an appreciation for why these Kickstarters are long. Like, as a backer, you're like, oh, God, I know I want this. Why do I have to wait, you know, 35 or 60 days until I know if I'm going to get it or not? Well, once you're a backer, you understand why. Like, it's it's hard. It takes time. (laughs) You really want to space that out. Because it will just you'll just destroy yourself if you try to do all this stuff in a really short span of time. Um, the the organization that it seems requiring, and I'm not even doing the hard work. You know, you're the one doing all the hard work on this. <laughs> you're the one who has to actually manage the the Kickstarter and do the updates. Um, I'm I'm just trying to plug it as much as I can and talk about it where I can, make sure that that it gets out there. Um, I can barely imagine trying to do this as the actual guy running the Kickstarter. I imagine that gives you a little bit more in that you have a little bit more information on hand. You know who's doing what and what yeah. things have changed. But I, I've been keeping track on KickTracker, so I've been following the, the progress that it goes through. Yeah. But it's 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 been an experience, I'll say that much. I've never had to... I've never felt so concerned with my own work there's something that i i created that i i desperately am hoping has enough appeal you know which is weird because very little of what i've actually done has gotten out there yet like the way that the the kickstarter works is they they sort of have to go on it like we can i can describe it there's the play test i've talked about it on other interviews and things but people don't actually get to see the whole thing until it either comes through or it doesn't because that's the nature of the beast. Like if it doesn't get a kickstarted, then it doesn't exist. So it's, it's right. weird. I can't just sit down and explain to each, I can't explain to 200 people exactly what the scenario is. So we just have to put the page up and do the best we can. Yeah. Um, I mean, and yeah, we, we've been putting up previews of it, um, online and there's certainly the actual plays which i think give people a very good idea of what the scenario plays like yeah. uh but there is that sort of and there is there is of course the idea we could you know give the play draft um out before the kickstarter is done but the problem with kickstarter is there's no money changes hands until the campaign completes successfully right and, and there's been so, there's been some kickstarters that have done that but they're yeah. they're from kickstarter they're from rpgs that that can afford not to give a shit like yeah. time stop or time clock or to- time watch the, yeah. the, the gumshoe one there, they were like, yeah, if you put in a dollar, we'll give you the rough draft. It's all in text, you know, whatever, help yourself. Yeah. Like they could afford that. <laughs> they were going right. to make their funding. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's that. And the thing, well, one thing is we don't have the art totally done yet. There, it's still being worked on. We have some of the artwork. We have a very talented artist, uh, Patsy McDowell, He's good. uh, he is very talented. We're very lucky to have him yeah. uh, help with us. Uh, we do have the cover art, of course, from Ian McLean, who did the cover art for Base Raiders as well. And but we don't have the like the maps, especially aren't completely done. Uh, and those are kind of essential to the whole process. Yeah. Um, and uh, for me, yeah, it's 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 sort of like you need to um, 
be ready to to back it if I if I handed out the playtest people also because it's a playtest draft. Uh, Pelgrim Press, you know, has an economy of scale over what we do because it's literally just you and me. Yep. Uh, there there is no one else working on this at all, and Pelgrim Press has a very talented, very large pool of people, of playtesters, editors, writers, uh, who are working on it, and I'm envious of them, and that's sort of the yeah. thing is um, I'm trying to go between I, I for me personally, this is sort of like the first step between going, there's a self-published author who just does his own work, and then there's the RPG companies that are successful and stable, and there's, how do you jump beyond the self-published author to being a full-time publisher? And that's sort of been one of my goals is I want to get more of the, the work that we sort of do at the, the original scenarios and the stuff that we do at RPBR. I want to get more of that out. But I can't – I realized I can't do it all on my own. So I need help uh, and I need to start managing other people's talents because mm-hmm. uh, there are a lot – I think RPG fans and listen, in like yeah, podcast listeners uh, are a very talented group. They're very creative. They're very – have eclectic tastes and they bring those to the game. And certainly the base Raiders community, the the people, the, every game I've heard about has been crazy uh, and hilarious and just very inventive, very original. Mm. And uh, it's it's um, sort of for me, this has been an experiment in figuring out how can I take that step up to the next level where I get more work out because as an RPG publisher, I can only do like one book every year, every other year, every year and a half. And that's not really going to make it as a commercial entity. I need to get more work out on a more regular basis. And um, like I've been doing these short-term PDFs, these uh, uh, PDF-only supplements that I could then eventually compile into a print-on-demand book, but that's only going to take it so far. So um, I don't know. It's It's a very... It's a very interesting conundrum, and I, I don't know if anybody's really figured that out. Every successful company I've seen seems to there's no post Kickstarter com, uh, uh, post Kickstarter companies that have arisen in the RPG industry that I'm aware of, like unless they had a huge, huge hit breakout hit. Everybody um, that I've seen's already been a company. Like there, yeah. a lot of companies that have successfully adapted. Um, Pelican Press has done pretty well, but they they can publish their own stuff. Um, yeah. The new the new Onyx Path, uh, the successor to the old White Wolf, has adopted that model completely, and they have a literal legion of fans who will just pay for that. So they've got that baked in for twenty years. <laughs> yeah, they've got an advantage there. <laughs> But as far as uh, yeah. like just a new guy who shows up on Kickstarter and says like I'm going to publish Kickstarter, I'm going to kickstart all of our games. We're just going to do it this way. I haven't seen that. I've seen people adapt, but I haven't seen an original creation yet. Right. But I mean, I and I'm not saying that that's my my or your opinions are or perceptions like definitive. There probably have been. Oh yeah, we're uh, because even in the RPG tabletop in, RPG industry, there there are a ton and ton and ton of Kickstarters. Yeah, going I don't on. read every Kickstarter. Uh, it's too hard. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Certainly for me, like managing it, um, I it, it is kind of a part time job in of itself, and it could be a full time. I know I, I, if I, I put more work and made it more of a full time job, I probably could get even better results. Um, I certainly know, like even if at the very top, like Robin Laws, who is actually right now doing a Kickstarter for Feng Shui too. Yep. 
uh, who's raised like one hundred twenty six thousand dollars at this point. <laughs> uh, but he is that that's his job right now is just promoting that Kickstarter. He's not writing. He's focused on promoting it. And that's the kind of thing you have to do. And um, certainly having more than one person do it, your, your help has been, you know, helpful. <laughs> in <Yay>. terms of <laughs> um, and, you know, another thing is also, I, I, I know that this doing an adventure for me as a publisher, one of the reasons why I wanted to do boiling point as the Kickstarter, there were other people who proposed other things that I want to do, but I, I, I wanted this one because it tied in task force Darknet, and it, and for that, it was, I think boiling point could be the introduction of an entire campaign. It could be like, here is your starter set. Here's your book and here's your adventure. This is enough to get you at least um, three sessions of material, almost certainly more of game out of it. So you get at least, you know, uh, a test for starting night is one session and then at least through two, three sessions worth of material from the adventure. If you like the RPPR crew, we kind of raced through it and the drunk and the ugly, I specifically had them go to the, 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 the sunken ship yeah. just because I wanted to focus on that. Um, you could certainly have it take m- many more sessions as, as you said earlier. Um, and I know there's so, and so the thing is also this is GM facing material. It's an adventure. Certainly, a player focused ma- uh, material might uh, be better commercially speaking. But I wanted this to I wanted the game to have like here is all the things you need. Here's the this is what an adventure can look like. Here is how base raiders. It's to set the tone and the theme of what the game is about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was important for me just to get like here's the thing. I'm not you know. Uh, abandoning it or whatever. I want you to understand that this is what I, this is my vision of the game. This is not to say it is the vision, but it is the kind of thing I want to do. And, uh, that, that's important to me as a publisher. So, um, as it makes people understand what my game is about, what, what, uh, base raiders, uh, is meant to be like, uh, not that you can't do it other ways. It's just, yeah. Um, so that was one of the reasons why I chose that as opposed to like, and also another thing for was that I wanted it to be your idea. I didn't want to like just say here's like Task Force Darknet was like because I was originally going to write it. Yeah, uh, was like here's an adventure that I wrote up, but I can't do. Here's your thing. This is more like I want to make sure I want to bring other writers into the fold, as it were, you know, to help develop them uh, professionally. And so I didn't want to like do this thing. You know, I'm like, what is your idea? I, I want to hear from you. And you, you came up with some really great ideas. Like the, the, they're shark dudes, but they have an interesting culture and they're not like stereotypical shark dudes. I don't know if that's a thing, but there are stereotypes, <laughs> but they have a, you, you've developed their cult- culture very mm-hmm. well and you, uh, made interesting choices about why they're doing it and how they're doing it. Uh, and I want to be in a place where, I, I, I want to encourage whatever idiosyncratic thing comes at me rather than just saying, I want, here's uh, the market and I want to do exactly just this because I think it is the most profitable thing. I want to create, I want to help publish original creative material as well. That's another reason why I just like, oh, that's a great idea. Let's do it, you know, because uh, that's how I got in the industry too. It's like, uh, just, hey, let's do monsters in a school. And uh, that, Shane Ivy took it, and that's how I got started. So anyway, um, but I've just been talking on and on. Well, thank and on. you, Ross. I'm <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, if for you, like, do you think um, 
you would now that you have this experience and once you get it done do you think you're going to just like keep pestering me for work oh god or... absolutely i'm gonna i'm gonna pester the snot out of you okay um, well i but mean I, but, but other publishers oh absolutely I mean, are... other publishers okay. um and i actually talked with some folks about this at gen con about being uh being a writer once you've got something um and um to well to bar to, to quote some advice i got from caleb when i was telling him about this uh I said, well, I've finished this and I'm going to use this as a, a thing I can put in people's hands to show them. And his reply was, oh, yeah, yeah, never, never stop shilling, never stop putting things out. Um, if you have something, don't show it to people, push it into their hands, make them make them take it. Don't. Uh, don't go crazy. I wouldn't send. I wouldn't send the same publisher an email every day for months on end, because that would just get it's creepy and illegal after a certain amount of time. But um, yeah, don't be afraid to put your, to, to say, Hey, I did this, you know, here's a thing that proves that I can actually do what I'm telling you that I can do. Uh, yeah. I've done it before. I can do it again. Have some, have confidence. It seems to be really quite important that uh, and it's kind of tricky. Like the, a lot of gamers, as far as I've known them, they can be very boisterous at the table. But then, if you try to get them to to do something, like to like, hey, you know, that was really good. Why don't you tell this person I know about it? They'll get like, well, I don't know. I'm. I, it's not that great. Or they'll pull back. Um, getting getting a lot of people to come out of their shells and and take credit for a good idea and to use their good idea. Um, I don't remember if it was, was it Louis CK that said, if you have a good idea, use that idea, use your good idea because you'll have another one. If you hold on to one idea for, for a long time, then you're just not going to have any more. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no. And that, that, that was Louis CK who said he was talking about a stand up and how he developed that he had in his head, this perfect material that he was never going to use until he was just right. And then he realized, no, just fucking use whatever the best thing you have at the time. And then you'll come up with more. And that's the thing. It's like exercise. You have to, Mm -hmm. uh, push yourself. And that's why, I mean, a lot of times you see, especially in the tabletop industry, um, a lot of people who have what they call fantasy heartbreakers and which are just these D&D knockoff games or or in fantasy fiction people like I had this idea in high school or junior high and I I've, I've held on to it ever since and it's a really cool idea and I'm not going to do anything else it's just that one idea and that's it and that's uh, that's my life's goal is to publish that one thing and I mean you almost never see that in a published like in a, it, like the best authors of all time, or like the really successful ones, even uh, not even necessarily like the the most legendary ones. They they're not just like uh, Tolkien didn't just like I'm going to do Lord of the Rings, the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, and then that's it. Uh, that's and he wasn't thinking that since high school. He just like oh I'm going to write this. Yeah, this you is know. a good idea. I'll do this. George R. R. Martin, like, <laughs> the Twilight Zone. You know, uh, he he had decades worth of writing experience before he dived into game of thrones yeah. and you 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 have to build it up and so you have to keep pushing and i mean like i have ideas like there's a couple ideas i'd like to re to re to go back and redo or really capture but i also have a ton of new ideas and so i and i can only work on one at a time yeah. um and, and 
it's yeah no i mean you, it's an excellent point you have to keep pushing yourself and yeah. well, and as a connection to that if your idea is not working like if you're having trouble then don't just drop it like if that idea isn't working for you don't be afraid to let that idea drop because you can come back to it if you really want to but if you're banging your head against the wall that you've got this thing you want to do and it's you you know what you want to do but you can't make it work or whatever your problem is then just move like let that one be and go on to something else and see if it comes back see if it works for you because it just might not work you you have to try some new things and if you if you obsess it's the the same thing you're going to end up with the same problem did that happen with you when you were writing boiling point did you have any sort of uh writer's block or uh, difficulties in writing it? Uh, yeah, or? yeah. Uh, about the midpoint um, between the the second and first draft, I think the the way that this goes, basically, for those who are interested, is when you want to propose an RPG or this scenario specifically, uh, you outline, you come up with a summary of what you want to do, like give a description of it, send it in to whoever you want. In this case, I send it in to Ross. And they'll say it's interesting, or they'll say maybe change this and try it again. Or in this case, when I got the summary done, Ross found it pretty interesting. He said, oh, that's great. Give me an outline. You know, give me some more information. So then you you make an outline. You put a skeleton of this whole thing together. Essentially, it, look, it looks not unlike a table of contents. You basically put little bullet points um, or however you organize it, you, you make it look like how it might if uh, if it had more meat on its bones. And from there, you then extend outwards and actually write it if the outline's approved. So I went from the summary to the outline in about four months, I think. Like, <laughs> like I sent you the summary, and you said, oh, that's that's pretty interesting. Give me an outline. And then I basically... I didn't touch it because I was afraid. I was like, "Oh wow, what if I what if I screw this up?" And I, I let it sit in my Gmail account for the longest time, and occasionally peep back at it. And then one day, I looked at it and I thought, "You know what? I should just do this." And I threw out threw together the outline, sent that in. I said, "Hey Ross, I know I haven't talked to you for five months, but here's the outline." <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, "Oh well, okay. No, it looks all right. Go ahead and write it out." <laughs> like, <laughs> Oh. I know I'm. I was such a tyrant, you know. <laughs> you, you really I, were. It was every, every right to be afraid, lording over me. Um, so after that, it went really, really fast. I went from outline to draft very, very quickly because I had the outline. And if you, if you do this in order, it works very well. Um, so did the the first draft, sent that in, that got a little bit of back, and then moved on to a second. That started to get out of control very quickly. And this will happen a lot, uh, happens a lot to me when I'm writing a scenario, that you're, you've got your outline, you're following it, and you have a new idea. Um, mm. I remember distinctly <laughs> was doing the, the how to get into the base, I think, and just started spiraling on like what would happen when they opened the door. And... It was like, okay, so if you make this check, you open the door. That's all it really needed. But I thought, well, wouldn't this be interesting if this happened? And this as well. And this, Well, here's how you'd avoid that. And it started getting out of control. And there were several paragraphs about what would happen when you open the door to the base. And it's just not interesting enough to deserve that. <laughs> 
and, well, and and the thing is, of course, there are complications because it's at the bottom of the. It's like on the ocean floor, or oh, yeah, you know, in the yeah, bottom, they were, they were... It's an underwater base. So, like, <laughs> there would be complications. It's not like opening the door to your house. There's it's there's water involved a lot oh yeah yeah and it worked really great but i i i stopped on that for a while and kind of felt like i i beat myself up a little bit on it i came back and we got that down to like a sentence or two like something something reasonable and use the rest of that space to describe other things relevant to the situation like other ways to get into the base because uh, part of revisions i found out like oh there's only one way in this place (laughs) There's one way in, it goes one place, there's only one way to get out. Like, the whole thing felt very railroady uh, after the yeah. after the first draft, and that was part of what, that's part of what revisions are for, is that you, you have other people point out obvious things that are wrong that you can't see. <laughs> yeah, uh, and, and that, that's certainly true, and um, the thing about RPG writing, as opposed to, you know, like, fiction, straight-up fiction writing, is that there is kind of this technical writing aspect to it. And then you need like this whole conciseness versus clarity. And certainly when you have a complicated, atypical situation in an RPG, like opening a hatch to an underwater base that has air in it and you're in water. So like what happens? And one thing you're like, Oh shit there, you need, it's, it gets really complicated really fast. Right. Cause it's okay. What happens and how do the players respond to it? <laughs> yeah. And then certainly it's complicated by the fact that superhero game they could literally alter reality. Or, you know they could do all kinds of shit. Um, so you so you could e- easily get in that rabbit hole of just like spy like you say it's spiraling in like oh god what what if it but what if what if what if and then you just have to and there, there's that kind of struggle between you know clarity and conciseness mm-hmm. and um, I guess you'll probably find out a lot more about this after we get feedback from the uh, playtesters. Uh, about what what works and what doesn't, but um, certainly by now you have a better feel of that, I guess. Oh, absolutely. I've I th- I feel like I've come a long way. Hopefully that proves to be true when actual human beings get to look at this and tell me about it um, compared to where I've been. So yeah, you know, just then that's just from having had you go through my stuff, having the other proofreaders go through it and come back to me, uh, and being very pleasantly surprised with that, by the way. Uh, I expected to get very uh, eviscerated by you and uh, by you and Thad, and it turned out to be very genial, pleasant advice, by and large. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, Thad is a very uh, pleasant person, yeah. and I, I am a writer as well, also. I'm, not the, I'm probably not the most attentive proofreader, to be honest. I, I tend to be more, ah, fuck it, let's do it live. <laughs> Uh, so I am more on the creative writing aspect rather than the editing, you know, uh, proofreading, which I'm certain people who proofread my work can comment on quite extensively. I've, I've proofread Uh, your base Raiders draft, so let's, let's not go there. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you had that aspect as well. Um, so in terms of, um, and also, well, speaking of aspects, I mean like writing for fate, uh, jeez. Yeah, <laughs> that sounds kind of like a wine, painful wines. I mean, there's actually not a lot of adventures for Fate. Aspects uh, are out there. really hard to write. Yeah. Um, now, anybody who's played Fate and played it well, and Fate is a game that puts a lot of weight on the party, on the group as a whole. Um, I am of the firm belief that 
a storyteller cannot save fate. Uh, you have to have players who are willing to play. And listening to the RPPR guys play Base Raiders, you see what a fate game is probably supposed to be. There's buy-in at the table, they understand the setting, they, they know what to go for. Uh, because Fate offers you all these options about narrative control, you can make declarations, you can change situations and make alterations to the scene, there's a lot of opportunity for group storytelling and to have really interesting stories as long as everybody understands what you're going for. And having been in some Fate games where not everybody was in that, um, we ended up with, uh, this was not Base Raiders, this was just an, a Fate core game, but we had a pretty, fairly gritty, good uh, game going. We had some airship pirates, we had you know, some, some guts and some one-liners. It was pretty good. And then we had a player who was attempting to suplex robots and was much more was not in the the gritty uh pirate vibe with the rest of us he was much more over on this like i want to be an anime hero and and the the only real response fate has to that respond to that that disconnect is for the gm to say like well no i'm not going to take your declaration and the problem with that is that that breaks one of the big things you don't want to do as a storyteller and that's to just tell your players no um it's very hard <laughs> so yeah. in base raiders you can have that very easily because superheroes come on a lot of different genres if you've got one half of the table that thinks you're in vertigo and you've got one half of the table that thinks that you're in four color then shit's gonna get crazy and not in a good way <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's that's a good point. Did this come up when you were writing the adventure? Because again, like Base Raiders is kind of more. It does lean more towards the four color side, yeah, but for, you could certainly run a very Vertigo esque yeah. uh, game of Base Raiders if you wanted to. If you emphasize certainly, there's a lot of angles to Base Raiders that I haven't really emphasized in the the actual play so far. That's like the exploitation of non humans. Like they don't have civil rights. They're not treated as people. Yeah. They literally have to live on the fringes, underground, in the sewers. Uh, there's also the fact that criminals are moving in. The government is also trying to, you know, repress, basically make sure, you know, it's more, far more repressive than they are, uh, they would be otherwise. So there's a lot of darkness to it and uh, that, that you could talk about or have games about. And I should, and I plan to do APs about that in the future, but mm -hmm. um, it's just been too fun otherwise. <laughs> it's, it's, and yeah, the, the, you have to get everybody at the same table. The, those things came up when I was actually running based Raiders, because again, I had a group of players who decided that the main aspect of their, their game was, um, you know, base rating is a business that capitalism is the, is the name of the game. So, yeah. and that's in there in the game and that's definitely in the setting as well. Yeah. So we had some players that, that had different ideas of things. So there were some people that had a little bit more, um, progressive pave over the world approaches versus people who were like, I'm just going to be a business person. Um, and that the scale affected some things, but that was just, that's, you know, that's table troubles. Um, yeah. but, the thing about writing these things down for a fate adventure is that an aspect or any sort of description in fate is very, very contextual that a word or two can mean very different things because it's reliant on what's going on. So when you write them in a scenario, there's a lot of pressure to make them perfect, to make them exactly what they need to be in relation to other aspects that might be on the, the situation. If you have a room that's going to be flooding with water, 
you can call that aspect the room floods with water, or you could call that aspect um, uh, slowly drowning. You could call that aspect um, the air is fading out. There's a lot of ways you can describe it as a writer, and when you're actually running the game as the GM, those aspect names will generally flow very easily to you because you're talking to the players, you're describing a situation. When you're writing it down for the scenario, you have to try and anticipate the mood that might be in this room if you want to make it a really good aspect that's going to to apply. And that's hard to do because it means you have to know what kind of game they're running. And I have the advantage that I am writing the scenario, so I do get to set the tone for it, but... Uh, as I'm sure you've seen, like just because an adventure, a published scenario has a certain tone, doesn't necessarily mean the players are going to keep to it. Yeah, uh, and so yeah, writing aspects for NPCs and rooms or in areas is certainly yeah. uh, a challenge to do. NPCs uh, are a little more fun. Like that was writing NPC <laughs> aspects is pretty fun, as is coming up with NPC names, especially for this game. Uh, yeah, that's actually one of the things uh, from the feedback of the first playtest, the RPPR group, was that we needed more shark people names. Yep. Um, and because we have like the two leaders that are in the previews, uh, Dressed in Bones, the Shaman, uh, and then the uh, Teeth Always Shown, the warrior leader mm-hmm. of the invasion force. Uh, but like the players didn't meet them first. They met, you know, random warrior uh, guy and his squad who were in the communications hub. And like, I thought the players like, oh god, da- dangerous alien shark dudes. We should fight them. They're stealing our, the stuff that we want to steal. Yeah. But no, they're like, no, let's talk to them. We'll find let's out why. Why are they here? This. <laughs> they could. Be, we don't know why they're there. That would be. It would be you know bat- wrong to just attack them. <laughs> uh, so I needed a name, and uh, that that was. Yeah. And I, I provide uh, a little. I had a little bit in there about like how yeah. they name themselves, but it didn't really help much. And so yeah. after the first playtest, I went back and I, I wrote a more detailed guide about how you would name people in the different layers of society and why they have the names that they do, as well as generating a bunch of ones you could just choose from. Yeah. And uh, and then of course that 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 whole led into the whole adding a whole new section to the thing, which was the diplomacy with mm-hmm. the shark like uh so that never came up in your uh, never you never considered the idea that the players might negotiate with the well i didn't consider war. that they would try to negotiate as vehemently the negotiation was always in the setting um but it was it's towards the end of, it was in the original draft at the end of the scenario the basic idea was that the the majority of the things that the players encountered would talk to them very briefly like the and this didn't get done in the descriptions properly, but that the the shark people were always supposed to be more than just shark people. They're, they're, that was one of the goals from yeah. the beginning, is that they'd be more complicated. And, and you, you have all this material in there, yeah. which is like about their culture and where they are, but the players don't know this. There's no way for them to find out unless they literally have, like, give me psychic, you know, give me uh, just summon plot information right which is part of the reason why we've changed some things around so the players can actually communicate with them uh but originally like i forgot that they wouldn't speak like in all honesty i forgot they wouldn't speak english and that's what play tests play tests are for is to to be like oh right you didn't mention that they would speak english i just kind of assumed that sharks would not just spontaneous just coincidentally speak english right and that's that's the thing it's it's a superhero game and you got to ask yourself all right is this a superhero world where 
every alien species has universal translators or is this one where, you know, there's going to be some complications and it, yeah. it was one of those things where in, in, when I, as soon as I listened to the scenario, I just put my hands in my face. I was like, Oh God, right. <laughs> I didn't, <laughs> I didn't write that down. You know, that was, that's my example of like, it's not your fault that you didn't yeah. know it's, I didn't tell you. <laughs> it's, yeah. So I, I liked the way you handled it. I thought that was very, that was very good. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is for me, like you gave enough material about what the, the Aselagius, is that how it's Aselagius, pronounced? Aselagius, yeah. Aselagius, the, that's the actual name of the, the shark dude. Yeah. They had, they, you came up with the name. Uh, and actually when I'm done, you should actually explain where that name came oh, from. I will. Or if you just yeah. Okay. But, uh, what I really another thing I really like was that you gave enough background material for the GM to like here are the Celtias here's what the culture are like here's what they're really up to and their plans and from that information I could extrapolate well like okay they're an advanced culture they have scientists they have workers uh, if the warriors meet people that are trying to talk to them they would contact the scientists and the scientists would try to translate try to try to they probably had and they they're a multi-dimensional species they go to other dimensions mm-hmm. um so they would have first contact protocols um so they would have some sort of procedure in place they wouldn't be like surprised they wouldn't do a man who was king kind of thing and just worship oh my god people who are different from us they must be gods right you know they they would have this kind of sophisticated reaction uh or, or plan in place that that even the warriors would know what to do mm-hmm. so that and that was just from a few pages of material i i kind of figured that i just kind of made those sort of assumptions uh that turned out to be accurate again you know uh, me as a gm i can interpret this material differently but in our, it seems that we were on the same wavelength we really uh, were i was kind of surprised with how how in tune with what i intended you actually ended up making it with very little information so well, that I think there was enough. I mean, because you 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 sort of spread around between like the personalities of the main leaders, the culture, mm-hmm. and the other thing, and it's it gives a lot of information. Uh, I mean, there's there's a lot of material in there, and um, you certainly uh, have an. I mean, if anything, we should have more material. About, like, what happens if the Celtics hang around? Like, how oh yeah, it- no, I I thought if this was a if this was going to work, I'd definitely want to do more with the the Celtics, like. You know, do a a short little like, oh, here's here's how you you know the shark people impact the world. Like, do you want to add Silicius to your game? This is what changes. Yeah, Um, but yeah, uh, so that so I think it was a very uh, uh, great bit of writing because you you gave enough of an insight into their into them as a culture that I could then figure out how they would react to any kind of situation. Uh, and I think that's sort of like the trademark of good RPG writing is that you give a little information and any kind of reasonable GM is like, Oh, they would do this in this. Re-. I mean, it's kind of like I'm currently running mass of Nair Lothotep and it doesn't like, it's a very open kind of campaign mm-hmm. where like, here's this location, here are the people here, where the clues are. There's no like, the players have to go here. They have to go here. They have to go here. It's like they can do whatever they want. He, the clues are here. If they find them, great. If not, well, that's uh, that's on you. you and so, like, scenario then. <laughs> yeah. So, like, I've had to figure out like, what are these cultists going to do when they when the the players do this, and how are the how are the other people going to react when this happens? Mm-hmm. And so, I've had to kind of like take these creations and sort of play with them, you know, uh, make them my own. And that that's kind of the thing is like bad scenarios are like you do this and this and this, and that's it. That's, that's the only possible thing. It's just like, it's kind of like here instructions on how they can work or how they're supposed to work. 
go for it. Uh, uh, so anyway, but um, Celagius, where did that name come? Well, um, it's actually pretty straightforward. Um, if you look up uh, the name for sharks, uh, you'll find that uh, the sharks are listed under uh, classification of uh, Celachimorphi or Celachai. And I basically just took that and, you know, put Eus on it. So that's, you know, they're, they're sharkus. <laughs> that, the is, that is their, their whole thing is they're basically just the, um, the speciized or the culturized version of shark. It's, it's just their Latin sub name. Um, and that seemed to be the most direct way to go because it sounds pretty cool. It doesn't really sound like it, it kind of has that shark or that fish sound to it. And mm -hmm. it just, it really worked. I experimented with a couple other things. I, I thought about calling them like shark people. I thought about going really abstract and coming up with like a, a phonetic. A Lovecraftian kind of name? Uh, yeah, essentially a phonetic thing. Like, okay, if you, I, I was trying to imagine like if a shark could talk, like a sh if water <laughs> passed over its gills in the other direction, like what, like what sort of noise would you get? that they would call themselves and I, I ended up just going with like you know what let's just keep this this easy and comic booky and make it something a gm could probably pronounce phonetically <laughs> uh yeah and that's that's a good point because um also i would imagine the celtius is actually the name the ideal gave them yeah uh, when it's they probably what them. they were called and that because the superheroes before they disappeared encountered these guys before and mm -hmm. you know you know fought them and defeated them and kept them from invading earth mm -hmm. um which is the players don't even know this backstory because it was it was a secret information. Yeah, and well, that was I. One of the things I really wanted to do was ha explore sort of middling races, like in the 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 heroes of New Arcadia, and then in Base Raiders, uh, you do a great job of presenting some some interesting alien species, um, mm -hmm. and with varying levels of success and invasion. The the Ludians being nuts right. and you know very very effective um the biologics being somewhat less effective but still an invader and then like the grays where they're just their invasion wasn't really that effective at all you know by and large right. like they they got beat and i wanted to kind of explore that idea of like uh this is a group that the the ideal would very easily defeat the the, the ideal could easily contain this invasion um they're just not a major thing and to to explore that idea of like this is uh, a threat that could destroy the world but for the group that was dealing with it, it was so out of the way and so deal withable, they didn't even think to tell anybody. <laughs> like, it's just one of the, they're like, what the, really? Like, there's shark people coming up out of the bottom of the ocean? Why didn't you warn us about that? Why? <laughs> I like that. I kind of thought that was an intentional, like, no, we must never tell them uh, because we're secretly a fascist group and we're going to, we just keep secrets because humans are stupid. But no, they, it's just like, we just, uh, we, they goofed. Yeah, Apparently, they're like, oh, this was easy. It really becomes like, well, that was easy. Okay, um, yeah. give them a name put a note in the computer like they don't send a message to like oh by the way u.s government you might want to keep an eye on any deep sea trenches in case these pop up because they're just like no we fixed this it's easy like if they come back we'll just beat them again like they don't even really care it's not a big deal i like that because it also like sort of shows that they're they they kind of aren't really great at the long-term planning like they hear like i kind of imply that both the heroes uh the ideal the, the former superheroes and the, the government uh the world are kind of 
basically acting they they do good but they do it in sort of like in a way that benefits them more yeah. so like and i guess i could also be they wouldn't be interested in telling the government about it because that kind of like what's the point of having the ideal around if the government can take care of this so uh-huh. like they if they like oh yeah it was secret and we didn't tell you about it they show up again they could always use that to just fight no we need you can't prosecute us we need our special yeah. laws and protection uh, because i've always imagined like in my games the ideal is sort of this well-intentioned group that just you know that got a little bit too big. Like the, they, I imagine that they, they had the Celsius pop up and they're like, well, we dealt with the situation. Let's do the cost benefit analysis on informing the U S government. What do we gain? All right. What do we give up? You know, what it, like is the measure, measure the public risk, you know, the, Hey, you yeah. super intelligent guy run 50 scenarios in your head about if we tell people that they're shark people and well in 70 in uh, 70 out of a thousand scenarios, there's world panic. And in 500, Nobody gives a crap and like, well, why bother then? You know, what's the point of telling anybody? <laughs> uh, that's a good point. I mean, and that's the other thing. I think that's that's kind of what I was going for in Base Raiders uh, in the setting chapters was basically like the ideal became a bureaucracy, mm-hmm. uh, a rival bureaucracy to the governments. But it was sort of like a Cold War between them or sort of like a rivalry. Like they're trying to like claim, lay claim to being the like, hey, we're, we're really masters of the world, masters of the universe. Um, and – the thing is about bureaucracies, a bureaucracy, regardless of why it has started, who started, who starts it, and for what cause, it eventually the bureaucracy be the bureaucracy's goal becomes to perpetuate itself. Yep. And that's what the ideal did is so like if like, oh, well, if telling people would hurt our self-interest, like it would cause a world panic, which would cause us to have to get press conferences and we have to calm <laughs> people down and we'd have to be let's get bitched at by the president for an hour mm-hmm. and be like, yeah, screw yeah. that. No, keep it a secret. And the longer yeah. a bureaucracy goes on, the more trivial the things are that, yeah, in the early stages, it's like, oh, man, if we did this, we'd risk human lives. And then. You know, by the end, right before Ragnarok, it's like, oh, you know, if we told anybody, we'd have to hold a press conference, and I hate those things. <laughs> <laughs> and so they're not evil; they're just like they're just tired, like yeah, they're, sick they're of burned it. out. <laughs> yeah, there's no like they they lock down all the superpower sources, so like no one else was becoming superhuman, uh, or they killed or recruited anybody who did, and so they burned out, and they just like they they. So it's kind of a conundrum for them. So uh, I, I, yeah, no, I think. I really like that because it's really consistent with the setting. So yeah, uh, that, was, that was sort of the idea is that that's, there's oh ideally that like the players show up and I, I might try to put more of this in in the next drafting, but like that they show up and there's just not a lot of information. Like they they I need to go into more details about checking the computer. There's there's a whole yeah. thing with the computer and the the boiler. You should also yeah. put in something about like doing research because now other bases have been broken into. Mm-hmm. The ideal database or at least parts of it is available right. on the black there, market. That's the idea is that there should be a name and uh, one of the things I experimented with but didn't really put in in yet and right now that we're talking about it is um this idea that the players come in and they find just a bare amount of information. Like they don't find much, you know, they find enough to know kind of what they're dealing with. And there's a bit of question like, wow, why is there so little known about this? Like, did they, um, was this such a strange event that this is not recorded? Are the databases thing? Are they hiding it? Like the, the question becomes, why is this the way it is? And, and the reality of it being that, well, we didn't write much down because we didn't need to know much that we beat them easily. We didn't care. 
that, that that actually could be a really good handout. You should maybe. Uh, I think we should have a memo that you find of like, dude, let's not tell him. I don't want to deal with more press conferences and senators calling yep. me and bitching me about shark dudes and like yeah. how that affects their Bible Belt people who are just like, yeah, this God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Shark guy. I do. Oh man, I would love that. Like, oh, I don't want to deal with evolutionist response of fish people. Like, it's just going to get weird. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, and we, uh, now we need now. I, now I've talked myself into it. Yeah, now. well, yeah. and do one like that where you you have something where it's very dismissive, and then pair it either in like later in that same document, like in the subheader, or a separate document where it says like rating on overall alien threat list. Uh, one, they're in position one hundred out of five hundred. You know, yeah. they're eh, they're kind of dangerous, but there's you know to just to imply that there's you know ninety nine other species. That are more dangerous than these Waiting guys, around the corner, and yeah. four hundred that are less. <laughs> I like that too. Yeah, so the idea we're kind of like, yeah, this one. They're looking at the bigger picture. Yeah, we can't tell their people about all the threats. They'd go crazy. We, they don't. Yeah, that's just, and that, yeah. that's getting a little bit men in black, where it's like, no, the, the Earth threatened every basically every week. We just don't tell anybody because they'd panic. Like. You know, and it, it's appropriate for this for this setting to be like, no, we just we stopped telling you when there were major threats because you guys can't handle it. <laughs> I like that. Uh, I like it. And, and sort of the base raiders is kind of the now in the setting is like, can people handle it? Can they handle this power and knowledge? Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of the, the, the central conflict of the game. Um, so because the old order has been thrown out and uh, all, all about the new order. Um, so. Uh well I'm I'm looking forward to seeing the final product getting this, <laughs> put this to do- and one uh, the one last thing I would like to mention um is about this Kickstarter it, I've been experimenting with this and one of the reasons why I designed this Kickstarter the way it is is just the major like there's no like high end rewards I I think I might add a Skype game reward because people have asked for those and those yeah, uh, I'm getting more fun yeah, and you know, I, I I like trying Skype games with other people. I, I'm just you know lazy, and of course, you can run some games yeah, too. I'll be happy to. Um, so I, uh, but I wanted a game. I wanted a project. This was designed from the beginning to end to be something that could be turned around quickly, because Base Raiders took ten months between the end of the Kickstarter to me releasing it from like um, November to like. November 2012 to like September, early October uh, of uh, 2013 to release it, and so I wanted something that could I could get do- that could be done in a few months. So like having the text mostly done, having the art mostly done, having the layout kind of in place, you just like having it so that we could polish it, make a really good product, and get it out fairly quickly. Because I want because so many Kickstarters take so long to do. And they go over time, and I want to do something the opposite of that. And so, um, for the listeners' home, that is why th- this is the way it is, is because I want to get you know more. Pe- I want to keep people you know in Kickstarter base raiders, and even though I'm working on another game, a horror game, um, I base raiders an ongoing thing, and I'm not going to abandon it. But I don't want it to take forever, and I want to you know keep again start moving up into that publisher thing. So. Um, because we did a lot of the work ahead of time, like you, you, you spent like months and months and months writing this. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's the the scenario as it exists is done. Like we have a we have a test draft. Yeah. You know, we have what's what's honestly a second second revision test draft. So, you know, if if we were if we were a bunch of dicks, we could just publish this. But you know, we're gonna go that extra mile. 
Yeah, no, we're going to, well, again, we want something with the finished artwork and uh, <laughs> the typos. And as many spelling errors as possible, yeah. Cut. <laughs> uh Yeah. Uh, well, and the layout is pretty rough, too. Well, there's like, that, yeah. Yeah, so oh, I got to will... fix that. Thanks, Ross. Yeah. Yeah. Ruin my evening. <laughs> what do you, I have to do the layout. <laughs> uh, you just have to worry about the tax. Oh, right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, that's, so anyways, you can back the game uh, for $15, or for $8 for the base PDF, $11 for the base uh, print. And I know people, okay, so let me explain just because people have a question. The, 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 the book will retail, the print book will retail for $12.99, you know, 13 bucks. But I'm the print book is $11 because I'm going to give you at the end of it a code when it's ready to go uh, so that you can print out at cost your own copy at drive through RPG. And people complain about that because they just want to hand all the money and just be done with it and get a book. They don't want to order it again. But there are two advantages to doing this. Uh, one, I mean, one is on my end. Uh, is that it's easier for me to not have to keep track of your shipping address. Um, but two, it is better for you as a customer because one, you don't have to enter in your address until you're ready to order. Once I give you that code, you can wait as long as you want and get that code and then enter in your current mailing address because some people will move between when they pay for the Kickstarter and when they want to buy the book and when they want to get the book uh, or when the book is ready to ship to them. Um, and two, the other thing is you will get the most accurate cost for it because it's very easy for me to overcharge you or undercharge you probably overcharge you now uh for shipping because shipping costs are variable and they tend to go up over time so i've been lately overestimating how much it costs to ship things but if you as a customer get that that printing cost you can then just print what it what pay actually what it costs to ship it to you and drive through rpg has printing presses in europe they have that kind of access so you get it at a much cheaper rate than me trying to print it and then mail it to you from america to the uh, to the europe so um there is that that is why i'm doing it this way it is for ultimately for you it benefits you the customer um, because you have more control and you actually only pay what it actually costs. You don't have to, and I've discounted it several bucks. So you actually don't have to, it, it works out to be about the same cost. Um, the, so you can back it at that level, the base print or the base PDF for eight, uh, for the PDF or 11 for the, the book, um, or $15 and get all our, we have four other PDFs. Uh, I'm probably going to release a fifth one before the end of the Kickstarter. So you'll get five PDFs of various, like, there's a villains, uh, a pre-generated player character. There's also boost patches, which are items player characters can use to give themselves temporary superpowers. Um, you have the, those kind of things. Uh, and then, but if you're new, if you've never played Base Raiders, you haven't bought the game already, you can back and save you more money buying at the a newcomer PDF level, which is at $25, you get the main game as well, which just saves you $5. And then $48, you get the main book and everything in print. So, um, and then we'll probably add Skype. I haven't fully decided yet, but I'm, you know, this is an experimental thing. So we're learning. It's a, it's a learning process. Um, so that, that was my spiel for it. That, that <laughs> explains everything pretty much. Peter, is there? Did I, leave I think that sums that up. Um, yeah. I just, uh, as would like to say this to anybody that's going to be playtesting this once we're done, um, please rub up against as much of this scenario as you can. Really get in the nooks and crannies. <laughs> I really want to see how these things react to people. Um, especially, I, I really encourage you to to shove your hands in things to really try those powers out, um, even if it looks like it's going to take your fingers off. Give it a try. 
Uh, yeah, especially the ones that would are kind of plot circumvention powers, you know, especially like the divination, the teleportation, mm-hmm. the time travel things. Yep. Uh, if your GM can handle it, go for it. Uh, let us know what kind of things would short circuit some of the difficulty in the yep. scenario. And there are, there are actually some powers built into this scenario as part of the, the pitch for it. There are a number of powers in the yeah, scenario. Yeah, there's loot. Like, yeah. there's some really good loot. And so far... And I don't think any of the playtests, anybody has has grabbed any of the powers to try them out. So I would really love if some of you playtesters would just pick stuff up to see what it does. Yeah, that's true. Um, there, there's yeah, you can spend more time, be more leisurely. Like again, the RPPR crew kind of race through things. Yeah, they sprint uh, as 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 in as they are wont to do. <laughs> and the drunken ugly, I started them in the sunken ship, basically pointed them in that direction just so because I wanted to try that out. Yep. And um, and even so, that was like a three and a half hour game. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah, we were looking forward to your input, and uh, thank you again for backing. If you already have, and if you haven't, what's wrong with you? Oh my god! <laughs> uh, so uh, that's it for this uh, interview with Game Designers Workshop. I'm Ross Payton, and I'm Peter Nielsen. All right, we'll talk to you guys next time. <laughs>